Welcome. My name is Robin Williams, and we're here to talk about transforming society. Do we want to transform society? Is it going to happen anyway? And we've got uh, several well-informed people on this. Um, next to me is Richard Slaughter, who looks to the future and foresight. And next to him is Simon Holmes Accord, who's going to give us a case study. He's very interested in wind farms and how they can operate and how they can be transformative in themselves. And Paul Gilding has written several books on ways in which the new technology and companies can actually face the future and how much they are actually doing so. So let's begin with uh, the future itself. And I'm reminded of there's um, a very interesting economist called Joseph Schumpeter who had, the, if you like, the burning deck theory of transformation. In other words, what you need is something that is really shockingly different, like a crisis, an earthquake, a tsunami, or maybe a war. And from that, so many technologies flow. Think of the Second World War, and there you had computers, you had radar, you had any number of really remarkable technologies which changed society. Perforce. Do you need that, or can we gradually move towards a different kind of future? So, Richard, what's your view? Well, I'd just like to start by saying it's brilliant to be here, and uh, I'm really happy to be part of this panel. For me, the, the future has become increasingly problematic over the last few decades, and the picture of the future has darkened for reasons that were clear, I think, earlier in this morning's talks about the issues that we know so well. I think, in essence, what I'd say from 20, 30 years of, of looking ahead is that humanity is sliding into a global trap of its own making. When I say its own making, I don't mean to say that everyone's contributed actively to that, though many of us do, perhaps passively. But it's rather a result of what uh, John Urey called the trajectory of development that became normalized in the US in, say, mid, uh, the mid-20th mid century, and then moved on uh, beyond that point to where that kind of way of life of high energy uh, use of tremendously high input of materials through the system of seeking constant growth became generalized out and um, followed by most of the world as a, as a great way to go. The only, the only problem was that there were always huge um, costs associated with that and at the end of the day uh, irresolvable issues and I think those are what we're looking at now particularly with uh, climate change and uh, the issues of, of growth. Uh, and also, of course, peak oil. Now, I know there's a whole lot of issues associated with peak oil and that some people say that's being offset in the US, but I see that as being strictly short-term, the so-called oil revolution that's happening there. So if the future looks so challenging, how do we respond? One response is to say, look, it's just all too hard. We simply just have to sit back and see, try to muddle our way through this. Well. I don't think that works. I don't think we are going to muddle our way through it. Personally, my view is that if we can really look honestly and fearlessly at the near-term future, we all know it's not a future we want to give to our kids and our grandkids. And for me, at least, that is a tremendous driver of motivation to not sit back, but to do everything I can in my role, in my way of life, 
to deal with it. Now, what I think that means for me is, and again, this reflects some of the themes that came out this morning, is looking dispassionately at the evidence, not one source of evidence, but triangulating, going to an issue and not looking about one or two people's views, but finding the highest quality information that I can find from anywhere, and then making a view up from that, a synthetic view. So in part one of Biggest Wake Up Call, I actually looked, said, what is the problem? And I went away and looked at all sorts of uh, communities of uh, scientists, sociologists, people who study the atmosphere, people looking at the oceans, people studying society, uh, the international criminal networks, the sort of shadow side of humanity, which we often don't talk about in this context, to find out what is the problem. And in one of the chapters, I actually take a quick overview of the Limits to Growth project, which I regard as one of the, probably one of the greatest gifts to humanity that we've ever had, because back in 1972, a small group of researchers got together and they tried to build a model of the global system. Very, very interesting, because at that point, they were pilloried, they were told they were stupid, they were mischaracterized as saying that everything was going to run out and the society would break down. They said nothing of the kind. In recent years, a few intelligent people have looked back and reviewed that project in detail. And one of the highlights that I just wish to mention briefly today is that the standard run scenario that they evolved from that first work in 72 through the next two or three decades turned out to actually track the way that the real world went after the, the project was wrapped up. So what we have there is a 30-year project, three major books, a last one in 2012 by Jürgen Randers, who was one of the members of the team, spinning off all this set of insights, recommendations, suggestions, and yet largely because it was uh, pilloried back in the early days, largely um, ignored. So that, that's one of the reasons why I think we continue to slip into the trap, because at a societal level, we simply don't seem to take uh, notice of the good material, the useful material that has, in fact, emerged over that long period. For me, however, though, looking more widely beyond the literature, beyond the futures area, I take a great deal of uh, encouragement, a great deal of, of, um, of qualified optimism from the fact that there are so many people working in so many ways. I would mention just very briefly the transition towns movement, because in, so far as I can tell, many of the people involved in that around the world are people who have indeed looked into that disastrous future and said what I said at the outset, we don't want to go there. So they're actually starting to make the transition now rather than waiting for the upheaval, the disruption, which is most certainly awaiting us down the track. And I think that really summarizes the whole point. You can't predict the future, but if you go back long enough, say to the middle of the 20th century, if you track that trajectory of development through to the present, I think the direction of it, the nature of it, the consequences of that trajectory are really pretty darn clear by this point, which translate into, translates into, so what are the specific actions, policies, etc. that we need to follow to get out of this trap. Thank you, Richard Slaughter. One quick question on Club of Rome and Limits to Growth. In the 42 years since that came out, how much more sophisticated are your techniques in foresight 
to give us an idea what's to come? Well, it's like looking back to the Stone Age, really, because one of the major things that has happened over that period is that we've, we're very grateful to the American pioneers who first started with their scenario analysis, people like Herman Kahn at the Hudson Institute and other people who did their work in their time. But what we found over time is that they were mostly paying attention to external trends out there in the wide world, empirical trends that could be measured. And what became clear to us in more, say, the last 20 years is that the interior issues to do with human development, and that gives us access to denial, evasion, the ways that we avoid this stuff, and also to inspiration, hope, motivation. So the human interiors have been added into futures, and also the cultural interiors. The fact, the, the influence of worldviews, values, and language is all now part of this evolving methodology that Futures has available. Thank you, Richard. Richard Slaughter is now living in Brisbane, and Simon Holmes Court is in Victoria, and you have a case history which I suspect may have something to do with wind farms. Great. Thanks, thanks a lot, and thank you, everyone, for having me here. Um, I've uh, I've, I've had an interest in, in a property just outside Dalesford, which is about an um, hour and 20 minutes uh, northwest of Melbourne um, for about 10 years or so. And uh, about 10 years ago this year, a developer came to, uh, came to a small town not far from Dalesford and proposed building a 30 turbine wind farm. And they held a public consultation meeting. They thought they'd gather the town together, put put a presentation together and show people uh, what they were planning to do. And uh, I, I unfortunately, I wish, I wish I was there but at the, uh, at, on that day to see it. But what, what happened? About 200 people turned up and, uh, and a group from Dalesford came along. Five people drove in and they were really excited that we were going to have a wind farm uh, in the local area. But as they walked into the town hall, they walked into what they said later uh, was a lot like a lynching. Um, there was, uh, people were afraid of, of, of all sorts of things. They had been worked into a frenzy and they were, they were afraid of uh, bird, birds being killed, they were afraid of health, they were afraid of, afraid of property values, just af afraid of all the things that the change might come with it. And they left the developer with uh, the very clear message that the developer was absolutely not welcome and then would face an uphill battle uh, with any change that they were uh, proposing for, for that community. And the, the five people from Dalesford that came along were, were really disappointed that the community's first response to the prospect of change was, was, was negative. Uh, one of them grew up in Denmark, uh, Pierre, Pierre Bernard, the founder of the project um, Hepburn Wind that um, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more about. Pierre, Pierre grew up in Denmark and in Denmark, uh, in, in just after the oil crisis uh, in, the, in the early 70s, they had uh, there was a national discussion of what were, th what were they going to do about their energy future. And a group, uh, a, a significant part of society said, well, we should, we should go renewable energy. Um, the only problem is that it, at that stage didn't exist at the commercial scale. And while, while this discussion was going on about whether or not it could be done, a group in Denmark uh, built the first uh, megawatt scale turbine at a, at a te technical college in a place called Twind. They built a demonstration turbine, and they showed that it they showed that it could work, and it started a revolution, um, much like the early uh, automotive industry in, in in the U.S. At one stage, there were about 60 or 70 companies around Denmark, all developing the technology. And there was phenomenal advancement, and along along the way, they struck on a model that worked worked wonderfully, where 
people who lived around wind farms became the owners of them. So they, they, the laws were such that it was very easy for communities to set up uh, cooperatives, for, for municipalities to uh, set up the structures so that ratepayers could invest in their own local wind farms. And they, uh, to date, have built um, 2,100 community-owned wind farms there. Probably to no surprise of, of anyone, um, when people had, were asking for this change, when they were putting their own money into them, the opposition simply wasn't there. They, they, they didn't have the experience that we had um, 10 years ago, not far from, not fa far from our community. And so Pierre, uh, our, our founder who grew up with, with this model where everybody owned part of a, of a wind farm, he thought it was crazy that our community didn't see the opportunity. We live in a windy area. Uh, and he, he set about changing, changing attitudes locally. He set up a card table in the main street tiny little card table, he had a, a wind atlas showing that we lived in a really windy area. He had a diagram showing how it could work, that we together could, uh, we, we could purchase some turbines, we could put the power into the grid, sell the energy and then return the money back into, but, but back to the members who put the money in, but also to other community causes. Uh, and then he had a sign-up sheet for people putting their name down. And I, I, I first bumped uh, into Pierre on the main street at one of these stalls. He did, he did, he did over 120 of these over four years in the main street. Uh, I, I bumped into him and, and I, I, I installed solar on my house um, and, uh, uh, and I, I thought renewable energy was a good thing and I, and I asked him what he was doing, he told me and I, I said, oh, I'm interested in putting a little wind turbine on our, on our farm and he said, don't worry about the little ones, join us and let's build one that can power the town. Uh, I, I, quick, I found the idea uh, infectious, as did many others. I, I was about the 300th member to sign up, and by the time there were 500 people, uh, we knew that we had a very strong community commitment uh, to this idea, and we had worked through all the misconceptions. We'd taken people on bus tours to go and visit other wind farms. We'd brought experts in, and we really had uh, a groundswell of opinion that this must be done, and, 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 and Dalesford was the place to do it. Um, about 2008, uh, in eight, 2008, we incorporated and started raising the money um, to build the turbines. And it was a long haul. We thought it would take us three months. It took us nearly three years to do it. But our community um, put together uh, $10 million to build a wind farm. Um, we had uh, the, the Hepburn Community Wind Park Cooperative has 2,000 members, the majority of whom are local. And people put in most, the, the, the average or the, the, um, the median investment was one to $2,000, but we had some people put in their self-managed super and we had uh, a, a, lot of, uh, a lot of young people put in $100 for a membership. So there's over 2,000 people came together, uh, pulled their money, and in, in early 2010, we were, at, we were in a position to sign a contract with a developer to build, to build a wind farm. Now, it took us a long time to find, uh, to find uh, wind farm suppliers who thought, who thought that we weren't totally crazy. When we first went and saw them with this idea, it looked like uh, a bunch of hippies with um, uh, this crazy Danish guy talking about your communal ownership of wind turbines. But the time we signed the deal, we had uh, we, we had a legal structures, 2,000 people, $10 million in the bank, and they knew we were serious. So we started the construction in, in late 2010, and it was a, a fantastic day uh, on the, on the uh, 18th of March 2011, when 300 people from our community came out and watched the turbine, the first turbine go up. We had the cranes on site, people set up picnic blankets, we had local musicians, and people sat in deck chairs all day to watch the first tower come up. About, um, two, two weeks later, the turbines switched on, and so they've now been running for two and a half years, 
and our two turbines that sit up on the hill, um, which which were, were named by a local uh, lo local school children, had a competition, and and a, um, uh, a local school um, uh, schoolgirl named the turbines Gail and Gusto. Um, Gail, Gail and Gusto uh, now generate uh, they generate as much power as 2,000 homes use in an entire year, and and we have slightly fewer houses than that in town. So it's it's fair to say that our our wind farm. Is, is powering the town. Some days we're powering three times as much as the town needs, other days we're not powering much, much at all. But on average, we're putting more into the grid than our town's coming out. And all the way along this journey, other communities approached us saying, can you build one for us? And we said, no, no, we're, we're not developers. We're not here to build projects for you. But we will, we will tell you how we did it and we will bring you along for that journey. And we set up an organisation called Embark, and Embark is uh, it's been working with, with a, a large number of communities. About 70 communities have come forward saying that they want to build similar projects. Some in wind, some in solar, little one in Victoria and mini hydro. Uh, it's whatever resource they've got locally. Uh, communities are, um, all over are going down the same, uh, the same path. It starts out with some idealistic folks who say, we, want to, we just want to do something. We're not happy with the, with the way things are going. We just want to do something to generate power and share the benefits locally. And gradually, the idea snowballs, and people who know about the resource or know about electricity network or the legal structures come together and embark uh, helps helps those organisations bring those bring those learnings together. And uh, we're we're now seeing um, Sydney Community Solar is a project that we'll start building soon. Uh, that uh, that is putting 400 kilowatts of solar panels in uh, the new Darling Harbour redevelopment in Sydney. So it's a it's an urban example of the Hepburn model. Uh, based in in a in an urban area, yep, sorry, urban urban area, uh, and it's open open. To, uh, the project will initially be open to those who live in apartments uh, or renters who previously haven't had an opportunity to put solar panels on the roof. Um, so we're seeing seeing now a lot of a lot of interest, whether you're urban or rural communities, whether it's wind or solar, in communities owning their own infrastructure and and taking an active role in their energy future. Quick question, Simon Holmes of Court: How much of South Australia's energy comes from wind power. Australia, uh, South Australia is, is is an amazing example where, where the rest of the rest of Australia is about uh, four or five percent wind power at the moment. South Australia is 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 just pushing through thirty percent. Uh, a third of its energy uh, is coming from uh, from wind, and another I think about another five percent is coming from solar. Uh, if if South Australia was a country, it would be at the top of the league tables of of wind usage and about the top in, in total renewables. It would be up there with, with Denmark. Uh, and the amazing thing is the, the lights are on. Um, the, the energy in um, South Australia, energy security is here. Uh, ha we haven't had to invent any new technologies like battery storage or, uh, or, or go with any, um, any technologies that haven't yet, ha haven't, uh, yet been developed. Uh, and the uh, Energy Supply Commission of South Australia um, put forward a directive last year to the retailers that uh, they had to lower their prices because of the dampening effect that wind power was having on energy prices here. Simon Holmes, of court from Victoria, and Paul Gilding is now in Tasmania. Paul, going back to that uh, original question, transforming society, gradual, we'll muck it through, or are we facing a crunch, do you think? Look, I think... Um Robin, where you know, I hope I've had 40 years in this space, right? 20 years as an activist, environmental organisations like Greenpeace, and the last 20 years in the corporate sector, and as a business advisor, and now a kind of University of Cambridge fellow doing kind of broader research into this issue of very issue of transformation. Can we kind of muck it on through, or will we do we kind of need a more dramatic response? 
And so bringing those two kind of presentations or comments together, I think, is where we are, is to recognise that this is no longer about the future. This is very much about today, that we're no longer talking about the transformation we might need to get into one day. <clears throat> we are now very much talking about the transformations underway today. And I think that transformation is, you know, to, to Richard's point, is really we are facing a pretty ugly future if we don't transform. And frankly, we're facing a reasonably ugly future either way at this point. And we can dwell on that. And many people, including myself, who've written whole books about it, do dwell on that because I think it's important to face up to the severity of the crisis that we face. But I kind of now feel, I've never felt this excited about the future as I do today. And I had breakfast with Tim Flannery this morning, my friend in this area, and we were sharing, you know, the, the sort of slightly bizarre feeling it is to have emotionally in this area to feel good about what's going on. Because for decades, we've all kind of been in this despondent, you know, society's stupid, why can't we wake up? The evidence is so clear, what's wrong with these people? And we both have this uneasy sense of optimism. And it's a really very strange emotion. Um, and it's one that I think is firmly rooted in the data. And if you look at that, you know, the examples that Simon's talking about in energy, there is so much going on in this space globally at the community level, but also at the very large economic level. And I if you look at, for example, the transformation underway in energy, and energy is only one part of this story, of course, but in energy, we're now seeing quite extraordinary things happening in the energy sector. And most of the mainstream media and most of the mainstream companies in the area kind of are still missing it. And to give you something sort of concrete evidence around that, so, for example, in solar power, the prices of solar have dropped 80% in the last five years. Now, it's very hard to imagine just how dramatic that is in terms of the energy infrastructure in the world and as a result how much solar is being installed around the world. So we are now seeing you know, $250, $300 billion a year being invested in new generation capacity in solar and wind and other renewables. But more importantly than that, which is actually pretty amazing in its own right, more important than that is just completely disrupting the energy system globally for the old companies who own the grids and the utilities in this sector. And there's a, a good case in point currently is the EU, which uh, someone talked about the wind and solar penetration in places like Denmark and Germany now, is so high that two things are being learned. First of all, everything's working just fine, thank you very much. The grid is functioning. We don't need new technology. In fact, the technology that's being installed there is actually fairly old technology, relatively speaking, to what's coming around today. So the grid is working, and it works. And you know we're all going along very nicely, thank you, except for the very large coal-fired power utilities who are busily going broke. And, and this is really very important because what it's driving through the market is this incredible recognition that we've kind of arrived at the point of transformation. So, for example, the average market capitalisation, the value of large European utilities has gone down by 50% right in the last five years. So there was a great article in The Economist recently, you know, with a headline, How to Lose Half a Trillion Dollars. Right? as though that was a bad thing, because it is for the companies involved. It's actually a very good thing for us, because the reason these utilities have lost half a trillion dollars in market cap is because the cost of generating power in Germany, with a very high level of penetration by renewables, is now a lot cheaper. Right? So this whole idea of solar being expensive, solar is now very in, a very important part of the energy generation system in Germany, and as a result, generating power is less than it used to be. Now, this is causing a great wave of change that happened through the market where every major um, investment bank, you know, uh, HSBC, Citigroup, Deutsche Bank and so on are all talking about the, 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 the window for investment in thermal coal plants for now is closed. 
right? There is no economic rationally justi just, just, justification to invest in a new coal mine, right? They can't raise money to invest in a new coal plant to generate power because the economic, economic risk is so great. Forget the fact that it will destroy civilization. just putting that aside for a moment. There is this minor issue, it doesn't make any economic sense anymore. Now that is very significant, because what that means is there's a whole bunch of people in the 1%, to use the Occupy language, amongst the elites who are saying, shit, this is real, right? I don't have to worry about it morally anymore, I've got to worry about it so I don't go broke, right? And there's a lot of people in that sphere of corporates and investors who are now saying this transformation is now very firmly underway. One more really significant thing about that though, beyond the kind of economic and, and amazing market shift we're now seeing and the creative destruction that's moving through the, the, the market of resources, coal production, energy generation and so on, uh, back to Richard's point about the kind of deeper transformation we need to go into, is that this is about distributed generation. Uh, so what it means is as opposed, this is not big power stations being replaced from coal to solar, which would be the same companies owning new technology. This is people putting it on their roofs. Uh, this is people doing community wind farms like Simon's. Uh, this is people taking control of their energy generation, which has a very big social impact on how we think about energy, has a very big, different, a very big economic impact personally, because you start investing in your own power, you think about power generation differently. But perhaps most importantly, it means the grid is being kind of, um, grid as a concept of a large centralised system is being replaced by the idea that we can go into and produce our own energy, right? And that is socially, I think, yet to be understood just how deep that transformation is. So just to close with a simple example. So what's happening now is referred to in the utility sector as the death spiral of the utility sector. So what's happening is people are putting in solar power on their roofs in Australia, South Australia in particular, but across Australia, over a million homes now have done this. In Germany, very high levels of penetration. That means that a lot of the power that these utilities used to sell, right, is no longer being sold by them, but is being made by people. And it also means the peak pricing on a hot, on a hot day in South Australia, when the, when the consumption is very high, people are producing more from solar. So the, the utilities are losing their high margin income and they're losing volume. Now, what that means is they're losing value, but what it also means is that the grid and their very heavy investment in assets needs to be spread across a smaller number of people. Right? So what that means is to connect to the grid becomes more expensive, so now they're arguing that you should pay to connect to the grid whether you use it or not. So of course what that means is people are now saying, well hang on, if I'm going to pay to connect to the grid, if these utilities will prevent me from and punish me for having solar, I'll have solar and batteries. Right? And I'll go off the grid, which of course means that more people are doing that and less people are on the grid. Which means the grid operator says that we should charge more to go on the grid now because there's less people using it. So people say, well I'm going to put on solar and batteries and do the opposite. So you have this spiral going on where, no, I wouldn't want to be owning the grid at the moment, but there is a death spiral going on where big utilities are fundamentally challenged by people taking control of their power. And we've had in politics of this in, in Western Australia and in Queensland where governments argue we should be taxing solar or putting, giving people less money to put solar on the grid, they get this big political backlash because of course 1.2 million people with solar systems translates to 2.5 to 3 million voters right, who now have a self-interest in this revolution happening. So really very exciting times. Exciting may be, but when you go to the boardrooms or when you go to the cabinet rooms, are those people in those rooms embracing change? Because I remember there was a guy called Obama who said, yes, you can. Mm. And nowadays we would say, Obama, no, no you can't. Well, ex except in Australia, the 1.2 million people, I think it is, Simon, about who, who've got solo on their rooftops are saying, well, yes, we have, <laughs> right? And, and we don't care whether you want us to or not. 
And that, that, is, that is really, I think, significant in the politics of this, because what it means is that, is that these technologies are becoming so cheap, right, and, and will keep on getting cheaper and cheaper. Moore's law on technology is starting to apply to solar. Right, the politics, you know, messy, messy stuff that you wouldn't get a lot of optimism looking at the politics anywhere in the world right now. But, but it's all not, not, wouldn't want to say it's irrelevant because policy is very important still and will be very important. But we no longer need to have policy to drive the change. The change is now underway and is frankly unstoppable um, by, by politics. And that's a big change. And so we're going to see in Australia, for example, uh, politics try and put you know, taxes on solar and higher grid charges to discourage this major problem of having too much solar on our system. Hello? Like, how is that a problem? Right? We had policy to encourage it, now we're having policy to discourage it. Right? So that kind of craziness will happen, and the, the boardrooms where I spend a lot of my time are looking in bewilderment at this scale of change, and frankly aren't recognising it, at which point we resort to my favourite economist, Joseph Schumpeter, uh, who invented the concept of creative destruction, which is a capitalism is a system of creative destruction that constantly destroys itself in a creative way and replaces itself, right? And that's what we're seeing now is that most companies don't recognise the scale of change coming. Most companies therefore will go broke, but don't worry, they'll be replaced with companies that do get it. And so now we have this slightly bizarre situation in America where Tesla, the electric car company, who produces, I think, 30,000 cars a year thereabouts, is valued at more than half of GM, who produces millions of cars a year. Because the market is saying, or oh, Tesla gets the future, right, and GM's missed it. And that is a very normal process of transformation that happens in society, is that these companies that don't get the future miss out and are replaced by those that do. Okay, Richard, Simon, how do you see our political systems recognising what seems to be a groundswell of, of change coming up? Well, as far as I'm concerned, they seem to be uh, delusionary and uh, in complete denial of really not getting the picture very well at all. Um, energy, absolutely critical infrastructure. And clearly, the more energy you have, the more things you can do. So that's, that's a vital backbone for society. What I'm still seeing in the cultural sphere, however, is that uh, consumption, which is one of the great sort of uh, parameters that are at work here, we all know that needs to be reduced. And yet there are powerful, powerful forces that you and I experience every day through uh, various commercial means, particularly advertising, that are still at this late stage continuing to stimulate uh, consumption of the very highest sort of uh, destructive level. There's a, a national newspaper that I won't mention, uh, a magazine that comes out monthly, a very slick production, large format, lots of brilliant pictures, basically saying, hey, you should have a 90-foot yacht. Buy your wife diamonds. Look at this latest brilliant, sexy car that's just come out that everyone just can't live without. I mean, that's crazy. That belongs to the 20th century or, or before. Similarly with economics, uh, there's a complete mismatch, uh, a talking past each other of, say, the people uh, who are concerned about the future, reading global signs, uh, trying to respond to them in their lives, their professions, and the uh, political economic elite, if I can use that word, who are still considering the secondary human economy as if it were the primary economy. And it simply isn't. So when you get somebody like Bill McKibben coming through a few months ago and saying, look, there's this certain amount of coal that we can put, that we can burn, and this certain amount of CO2 that we can put into the atmosphere, after which we have to stop, then 
there are all these other people who are saying, no, the economy comes first. We have to keep burning the coal, doing the energy the old way. And so, you know, it just doesn't make any sense to me. So at some point, I think there has to be a breakdown or a breakthrough of intelligence, of really just being honest and being real about what's going on. One last thing I'd like to say about foresight is that when some of those uh, athletes were coming back from Sochi recently, there was a, a bit of uh, kickback about the whole amount of money that had been spent sending athletes over there, Olympic athletes, training them, looking after them. And I thought to myself, gee, that reminds me of a whole picture of sport in Australia. How much money gets spent on training up bright young men and women in various sports to compete and be the best they can. Why is it that we can spend that money in sport, we can spend it in Olympics, but in the uh, biggest wake-up call, uh, sorry, in, um, in Limits to Growth, and also um, in other sources um, that I've come across, most rec recently a paper by Ehrlich and Ehrlich, you know, the old Ehrlich of uh, Paul Ehrlich of Population Bomb, the concept of foresight intelligence keeps coming up. And this is where I think we need some foresight intelligence. So it interests me in a culture that's becoming aware of these issues that we spend what resources we have in ways like that, which makes sense, but we don't spend it helping bright young people who are qualified in foresight, strategic foresight, foresight intelligence to actually come through and reach the, the levels that they could reach if they were given the chance. So you see, there's, there, are th there are things that are needed in this culture that really would help to use whatever energy is generated in more intelligent ways better. If we, if we have new energy and old thinking, I still don't think that'll get us very far. So the, probably no, no surprise, but the, I'm not surprising anyone here, that the, the goalposts in energy policy shifted dramatically about six months ago, such that it is, uh, it, it is very difficult for the, for the large companies that want, uh, want clean energy to operate in the current political environment, and it's, it's going to get worse for them. And um, unfortunately, the, the largest players in the clean energy space uh, in Australia are also the largest players in the fossil fuel space. Uh, and uh, two of the three largest just posted large losses from their, their coal business, and, and I'm sure we'll see that trend continue. So the, the, big, the big money uh, friends of renewables and the, uh, and the politics are making things really hard. That's, that's, that's the bad news. The good news is, is that five years ago we, we only had 5,000 rooftops in Australia with solar panels on them. We now have 1.2 million small power stations in Australia. 1.2 million from a base of 5,000 not long ago. And they are making a real difference. Uh, and, and everyone is surprised at how much of a difference it's making. Just, I, I think some of the surprise comes from they all come on in the middle of the day. Um, so it's, it's like uh, you know, all of their powers coming on correlated at the same time. So it's, it's as if they're punching four or five times above their weight because they're operating uh, all together in unison and they're cutting out you know, the, the ice cream from the market prices. The, the, where, where people used to make their money in that hot afternoon, that's when the one and a half or 1.2 million solar panels, uh, solar, fac um, solar generators in Australia are, are all coming on. And that's only a small part of, of, of the number of roofs. And uh, it's slowed down a little bit with, uh, with policy uncertainty. And I'm sure that the, 
renewable energy target review that's on right now will do its best to, to, to undermine. But uh, I was I say, saying to Paul before, I, I, I see that solar has become unstoppable with, with an asterisk. Um, what's the asterisk? Well, it's become unstoppable. Um, just, why is it unstoppable? It's unstoppable because the, the economics make absolute sense. If you've got a north-facing roof and you don't have solar panels, you're, you're flushing money, you know, you're flushing mo your money away. Um, the asterisks, why, what could stop it? Well, the, the generators, the distributors um, don't, want you to, don't want you to go much further than the experiment. The experiment we had with solar has gone too far and they would love to stop it. But it's not going to stop because the economics are there and the, peop the, the three million Australians who live underneath the solar panel are starting to get a p political clout. Uh, in Western Australia, I think it was last year, they announced that they were going to retro, uh, retroactively cut back the feed-in tariff there. Uh, and um, a massive campaign was started online and um, within, within 48 hours, Colin Barnett got up and said, sorry, we, we got that one wrong and we're, and we're going to take that policy off the table. So this, uh, th there's, there's still about 7 million Australian rooftops that don't have solar on them and we, we haven't started with uh, small business, with communities, we're only just getting started. There's a lot, of, there's a lot, a lot there. But, um, uh, whether whether there's denial or not in the cabinet rooms and, and the boardrooms, uh, these these small distributed power stations, because they make economic sense, are just going to keep going to undermine the business model. Quick point from Paul, and then we'll go for questions. Look, Robin, I think this is a really interesting time on this issue of markets and what what Simon's talking about. There was a great uh, excitement amongst you know free market fundamentalists about having a privatised utility sector how to make power cheaper and it'll make the whole system more efficient, which of course it didn't, by the way. Um, but now it is. So now it's happening that because we have a market for power, this high margin power in the middle of the day is now virtually free in terms of generation costs because it's being produced by solar. And that I think is a really significant shift. The second thing, which I think is just laced with such delicious irony, I just, I just love it to death, is the fact that Tony Abbott, right, my the best friend of the solar industry, got everyone in Australia so terrified about the price of power and this incredibly destructive carbon tax coming in that everyone panicked and put solar panels on their roof, <laughs> right? And because everyone did that and put solar panels on the roof, the power, cost of power has now gone down, right, despite their best intentions because the market actually makes it happen. And that's a really deliciously ironic, you know, kind of outcome. But just, just one more quick comment about this is that this is not just about climate change and solar power. Right, if you look at this conversation about the global food crisis and why we need GMOs and more industrial agriculture and how we're going to face this global catastrophe because of climate change and soil degradation, all of which is right, right most of our food is produced by small farmers in developing countries. Most of the world's food is. Right? And simple improvements to them, like having solar panels on their farms, like small improvements in technology to, to you know, green organic farming, etc., is showing to increase their production by 30 and 40% for very low inputs. So the point about this distributed system in solar also applies in farming, that there is actually the best opportunity we have to increase food production globally is helping small farmers to increase their output. And that again, I think, is not just an We don't hear about it much from big industrial agricultural companies, but it is happening on the ground. And that, I think, is another sign of very exciting hope of a kind of more distributed economy taking over the system and delivering what we need in a very practical way. So there we've got a picture of uh, our institutions being centralised, large, old-fashioned, not changing. The people, on the other hand, making use of the new technologies and being decentralised, taking over their own situation. And so the question is, 
how is it going to come together? And we've got a question over there. Please. Uh, it's clear that the big centralised fossil fury fuel generators, that's bad. It's clear that the distributed small-scale rooftop generation is good. The grid has been built in the service of the bad, but the grid could be part of the good uh, by perhaps slightly different design, different philosophy, and it could help distribute the uh, solar generation in one part to somewhere else where there's currently cloud, the wind uh, and other uh, good guys around. Can we subvert the owners of the grid so that they see the light and change sides? And how should we do that? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll answer that. Thank you. Simon. <laughs> Thank you. Um, the grid actually is, is working really well in the, distributed, uh, in the distributed network. And the Hepburn Wind Project, we are plugged into the distribution network. Where there's a line that comes from Ballarat. It goes past uh, a few hundred houses on the way. Uh, then there's our wind farm, then a few dozen houses, and then there's Dalesford and a few other smaller communities. And we're plugging right in uh, into that network, and it's working. South Australia, 30, about 34, 35% renewables in a grid that uh, is, is adapting and, and uh, operating really well. And in fact, there's, uh, the, the energy supply authorities just agreed to upgrade the grid from South Australia to Victoria. They worked out that if they, uh, if they spend $90 million on the grid, uh, it will allow energy to flow in both directions that will reduce energy prices by $300 million. So they, they made a case that putting a little bit of money into transforming the grid is good for all of us as energy consumers. And there's a lot more opportunities like that. There's plans, to, um, there's plans that have been costed out to put grid connection through from South Australia up to Queensland. To, uh, it's, it's not an efficient route at the moment to get power up there, but there's plans to put that in and the, and the project will pay itself off in, in well under 10 years, I believe, with that, that project. So the, the economic case for grid augmentation is there and we can already do 30%, 35% as, as South Australia has shown. Paul. I think there's, there's a couple of things here that are lessons from the sort of dot-com information technology area. And I think that one of the lessons is the, sp the pace of change is, is rapid. Um, the second is that it's chaotic. And I think that in the grid we're going to see chaotic change, but we're also going to see a lot of very exciting things happen. There is a conversation in places like India, for example, saying let's just forget the grid. It's going to be cheaper for us to actually put in place solar with battery storage into small villages everywhere than it will be to put a grid in. Other places have a grid and need to work out how to retrospectively make it work for them. So in Germany, there's a lot of conversations about communities uh, in sort of Simon's model of co-ops, buying up the local grid, buying it back from the utility. And the utility is saying, actually, that's a good idea because then you'll look after it for your own interest rather than ours, and ours doesn't make sense anymore. And there was also a conversation amongst the big service providers of technology saying, how do we have an open source, open access grid like a kind of thinking about Android phones and making the information available so anybody can plug into it with smart technology. So those sort of conversations are happening. It's very unclear where it will end up, except that I think that the, the current owners will either transform their model or they'll die, right? And if they die commercially, governments will simply take them over again as a grid and keep it functioning. So there is no danger to us as a consumer, as a society. There is a big danger for the investor not to change, but the grid won't go away but I think there will be a multitude of solutions. And yes, there is a lot of subversion opportunity in that process to make the grid work for us better. Another question, please. We have one at the front, yes, down here. Simon, I was just wondering, what kind of return on investment have those that 
the 10 million that you receive for that initial project, being able to receive or will receive versus investing in coal or other kinds of energy. So that those down the track can use that as a, I've been trying to look to invest in renewable energy for years and nobody can give me where to do it. Yeah, and there are there are very few opportunities in Australia. We used to have uh, have Pacific Hydro, and then they were bought out by uh, industry funds. And for a little while there, uh, Hepburn was the only way that you could directly invest in uh, in in wind farms in Australia. There's very few opportunities to to do so. Predicting return is is totally a function of market prices. Um, three three years ago, it looked like it was going to be about a seven year return for for our project. Uh, energy prices have halved since then. Um, it's a really tough environment for everyone out there. The, the, the fossil generators, and especially uh, the gas generators who have to have to pay very high prices for their input, are, are, are really hurting. Um, for renewables, uh, fortunately, we've got very low debt, so we can ride through. Uh, it costs us very little to generate power. We've just got to look after the turbines. Um, so as, as energy prices are right now, uh, it, you know, it, it's going to take a while. Are any of your investors take. pissed off that you've It's really Yeah, really interesting. We, we, we asked members, um, they, they want to see an economic return and they will get an economic return. But they're also, um, they, they entered the project um, because they, they wanted to affect change. Uh, they wanted to be a part of the change and they wanted to help other communities to do the same. Um, yeah, so, but it's, it's tough, tough times for all. Uh, it, we used to think it'd be, be seven years. I think it'll be more, you know, 12, 15 years before people start, uh, before before people will get their return back. Um, but uh, I tell you, I'd much rather be in renewable energy right now than, you know, for, for us the fundamentals are getting better year on year, whereas the fossils, the fundamentals are getting worse. Question over here. Oh, yeah. Okay. So I, I think it's quite a sad reality that we need to put saving the uh, planet in financial terms, which it is a reality, but. Um, so I, I know in the energy market, I know it's about a $6 trillion market, I think, globally. Um, there's a lot of exciting inventions that are out there that I think are lying dormant because they threaten that uh, $6 trillion market. So, for example, say if I got up and I invented a technology that was powered on smiles, okay, and we could power everything on smiles, and it was free, environmentally friendly, but it totally eliminated the $6 trillion energy market. Um, I'd, I'd probably be very frightened for my life. I probably wouldn't, you know. So I'm wondering, like, is there, is there any scope to pr protect people that do have very exciting, uh, sustainable, renewable solutions uh, from the uh, corporate interests? Look, uh, definitely my topic. Look, I think um, it changes, like, initially, like, there's no question the car industry, for example, and the oil industry, you know, wiped out public transport in America, put inside highways. It was a very deliberate strategy to develop, develop industry to suit their interests, right? And for many years, those sort of things have been bought up and squashed, right? There are certainly plenty of evidence of that. The trouble is the $6 trillion you talk about, right? There are a lot of very greedy people in the world who think $6 trillion is a hell of a good opportunity, right? And therefore, they will actually come and protect you, right, and, and invest in your smile technology because it's a hell of a good opportunity. Now, of course, if it makes no money at all, then, then those things are more difficult. But the reality is today, we are seeing massive amounts of money, private money, going into research and development of all sorts of wacky things in the energy area, just because it is a $6 trillion opportunity. Now, yes, of course, if you're an oil or a coal company, you'll try and stop that. And that works when it's a wacky investor in a university somewhere. But when it's Google and Apple, 
right, doing that, it's much harder to stop them because they're powerful and they're rich and they're in the 0.001%, right? And there was a good example last week where the CEO of Apple Computers was confronted at an AGM by a bunch of conservative investors who said, what are you wasting my money for, right, investing in renewable energy to power Apple? You should be just doing things to maximise shareholder return. And, and, the, and the CEO, um, Tim Cook, got visibly angry, which apparently he never does, and said, sell your shares. Right? If you think I'm only going to do things that are good for Apple and good for shareholder return, I'm not. So you're in the wrong company. Right? We do things that are good for shareholders and good for society. Now, they're also ripping Australia off in terms of taxes, another story. But <laughs> apart from that minor issue, so they're not kind of a great icon of, of corporate responsibility. But the point of that is that they are big, powerful companies who are now arguing for change. And I'm not saying they're going to save the world, but what it means is this balance between the bad guys who are going to resist change, in fairness, legitimately and appropriately, and we all would do it in the same situation, to defend your business. That's what business does. That's what we all do, is defend self-interest. But they've lost, right? And ultimately, when you lose, you lose. doesn't matter how much money you've got, how much power you've got. I mean, Gaddafi had a quite a good army and lots of castles. They still overran his castles, right? I mean, there is a point where no amount of power and lobbying capacity or money will protect you when you're on the wrong side of history. You can delay it, but you can't completely overcome it. Two quick questions, one over here and one over there. Um, I'm just wondering what were the uh, original objections uh, based on um, when uh, the windmill um, uh, project was uh, suggested. And it seems like uh, the same community raised the $10 million not long after that. Uh, to have the windmills uh, erected. So was it health risk? Was it um, environmental? What was the cause? I, I actually kept a list at the time, and I, I, the list got up to 31 objections. And the, the, the big ones, fear, there's, there's been a lot of fear-mongering over the last few years about health, and I think that's behind us. The, the National Health and Medical Research Council just came out with what's the, the, the 20th international report uh, in a row that says that there is, there's no health risk uh, that any evidence can be found for, for, for wind turbines. So I think the health argument's behind us. Uh, we had a while where there was uh, concerns about birds. Um, the research came out on that, and that issue's behind us, that properly sited wind farms don't, don't pose any appreciable risk. Um, but we had a whole lot of other uh, f fears that... Um, is it irrational to have fears of change? I think it's, it's, it's human to have, to have fears of, of, of change. But we had people worried that the plastic insulation of the cables underground uh, would poison the groundwater, or the, uh, the turbines would plug, uh, plug up the aquifers in Dalesford and Mount Franklin water and Deep Spring, uh, you know, that, the iconic brands from our, from our region. So people were worried about that. They were worried about stray electricity blowing downwind from the wind farm. <laughs> Serious. Um, a lot of it was, what was, was I think, just a natural reaction to um, you know, I, I never thought of where my power comes before, from before. I think most, most Victorians had never thought about it. It comes from 400, uh, or, sorry, it must be about 300, 200 kilometres uh, east of, of Melbourne um, in uh, uh, the Latrobe Valley. More wells on fire and, and uh, the, you know, the, the cost, they're the thinking the cost of putting out that, mm. the, uh, the fire from that coal mine is, is $10 million, not counting uh, the public health implications of, of... Simon, what about the cost of minerals and rare earths for the, wind, the turbines? Yeah, so for our turbines, and the, the vast majority, uh, uh, don't have exotic minerals in them. There are some turbines that, that rely on rare earths, and, and there, um, there have been some issues, environmental issues with that. 
Um, I think that story is a bit of a beat up compared to the the minerals that are being ejected from uh, from chimneys all around the world. Um, you know, that there's there are there's uh, more than more than a hundred kilos of mercury uh, is going in being vaporized into the uh, area around Morwell every year. Um, so and and there, and there are countless stories like that. So. Sure. Lots of beat-up stories, but yeah, fear of change uh, brings out uh, lots and lots of uh, uh, unusual objections. And talking through, taking people to visit wind farms and and familiarising them, uh, building trust, go a long way uh, towards breaking down those barriers. One last question. Thank you for your interesting um, discourse this afternoon. I just wondered, is there another way of looking at this in a slightly more positive light, given Australia is somewhat behind the eight ball on the international scale of what's, been, what's going on. Can we see this as an opportunity for Australia to uh, take advantage of leapfrogging technologies out there in the wider world? You have 40 seconds each. Look, absolutely, and I think that the Australia is completely, I mean, really well positioned in terms of solar irradiation levels in Australia. It means we can produce solar more cheaply than other people can. We have an amazing opportunity in agriculture. If we get our agricultural system to be sustainable and, and done in the appropriate way that we know how to do, great opportunity for exports in, in terms of that and helping to feed the world, which really is an important um, topic. So I think, and, and Australians do embrace these things, right? So I do think in the solar example, we've gone from nothing to 1.2 million homes in five years. That's a remarkable, quite remarkable uptake. Simon. We've got amazing wind resource, solar resource, uh, a, uh, a very strong geothermal, bioenergy um, and marine power resource in Australia. We've got a phenomenal future uh, that we can, we can now mine these renewable technologies. Um, we're, we're not waiting for technology for most of them. We can get on and do it now. Uh, and uh, as the economics improve, I hate to, hate to say that that is unfortunately the, the, the key thing here, but as it improves, it's going to happen and it's happening now. Richard Slaughter. Yes, I look forward to seeing these things happen and I think that Australia can lead, but I think that underlying that, the critical factor is a shift from socio-centric values and worldviews where we're just thinking about us and world-centric values and worldviews where we expand, as these folk obviously have in their work and their lives, to the wider picture and put everything that we try to do, innovations, everything, social innovations, the kinds of projects that have been discussed briefly here into that wider context, because that is the context that matters. Well, here we are, transforming society. The answer has been we are already transforming society, but there are some people around who say nothing should ever happen for the first time. <laughs> and many of them are in charge. <laughs> so what we do about that is, I think, to have a vigorous conversation. Would you please thank we're Paul Gilling, <laughs> Simon Holmes, of course, and Richard Slaughter. <laughs>